Well, if you've been with us, you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 12. Part of uh, expositional teaching is working through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and our, our desire isn't just to skip the parts that we don't like and to move to the parts that, uh, that make us feel good about, about who we are. Um, our commitment is to, to allow the, the breadth of God's truth, his teaching, to inform our hearts and to, to lead us into the things he wants for us to know. And so here we are in this section of Luke, Luke chapter 12, and right at the beginning, Jesus seems a little, a little mean-spirited. His, his message to us is a little aggressive. It's, uh, it's firm, it's clear, it's sharp. It is divisive in some respects. It's, it's hard, it's a hard word. And as Jesus is teaching to this crowd, we find in Luke chapter 12, verse one, thousands and thousands of individuals who have come to hear this message. So much so that they're tripping over themselves so they can, so they can hear a little bit from this teacher. And Jesus, here in the final months of his ministry, is bringing the truth right home to the heart. Jesus is interested in helping to differentiate between the pretenders and between those who are true disciples of his. Those who are hypocrites, and he refers to them as such in Luke chapter 12, verses one and two. Those religious counterfeits who would have, a, have an image, an outward image and perspective of those who are following after God, but truly, deep down inside, they were whitewashed tombs. Their heart was totally out of sync with devotion to God. And so Jesus, in just a couple months away from the cross, is cutting straight and helping his audience understand what it means to be a true disciple of God, what it means to really live and exist in the kingdom of God, as it were. What does it, what does it mean to embrace the king and to live in the reality of this kingdom perspective that Jesus has been talking about ever since the beginning? You know, several years ago, I had the opportunity to kind of go and be with a man who was in the final week of his life. Uh, he, got, he had been struggling with cancer for about five years, and, um, and it was clear there was no more treatment that was possible. And he was in the final few moments, the last few breaths of his life were going to be expended at some point along the way in the next few days. This man named Mike, Mike Brown understood the urgency of those moments. The day after day in that five to seven day period of time, as his family was gathering around his bed, his children, his grandchildren, his nieces, his nephews, as they were there, there was one thing, one message, one truth that dominated his heart. He didn't wanna talk about the good old days. He didn't want to recount the, the stories of the past. He, he had one thing in view, one focus, one message to give, and that was eternity. The eternity was at stake, was, was in his heart for his children, his grandchildren, and his family who gathered there around his bed. He knew that the truth was 
the only thing that was going to make the difference between them living an eternal life away from God in hell or living forever in heaven. And he encouraged them to prepare for that moment. The seriousness of his death in eternity hung in the balance. That's where Jesus is in Luke chapter 12. We're we're on the downward slope, as it were, as Jesus in Luke chapter 9, from Luke chapter 9 to the end of the gospel, is is looking towards the cross. He's set his eyes and his face to go to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen there. And he knows what happens for anyone who is just a pretender and not a true disciple of his. And so he wants to prepare them. What does it mean to live for the kingdom. How do you examine your life? How do you know that you're a true disciple of mine? And Jesus, from, from, from verse one all the way through the end of this chapter and then continuing into chapter 13, has this in mind. He's talked about living life as if Jesus matters. Understanding that the things that are spoken in the secret, in the dark places, are eventually going to be revealed. God knows those secret things. He knows those hidden things. Those things are not concealed from a God who is everywhere present. He recognizes and is conveying to those who are there in the crowd that covetousness Covetousness, perhaps, is the, is the greatest obstacle for those who desire a comfortable life from really having faith in God. They trust their money, they trust their things, they pursue building up and stockpiling, they, they want a, the kind of life that is easy. And Jesus is addressing their covetous heart, their idolatrous heart, it will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Last week, Pastor Ben, and I appreciate your ministry, Pastor Ben last week, helped us understand the significance of being ready for the king, the imminent return of Christ. And and that is on his heart. It's kind of the the outflow of of this passage in verses 49 to 59 in Luke chapter 12, the heart of Jesus. How can I be ready? How can I prepare for the inevitability of the work that Jesus is about to do in ushering in judgment to the world for those who disbelieve, who choose not to believe? Prepare your heart for the kingdom. Preparation. We all know something about preparation. And I, uh, I just appreciate uh, this church in, in letting uh, myself and Isaac die to spend a week in Costa Rica. Uh, what a great time that was in being able to teach some of the, the, uh, the pastors and Christian leaders who were there. But there was a lot of preparation that went in to getting ready for teaching Old Testament survey to a group of pastors. And sometimes we have the luxury of preparation, and other times we don't have the luxury of preparation. Isaac was called yesterday by a church in Xenia, and they said, hey, would you be willing to preach for us tomorrow? So Isaac is preaching right now. Be praying for him, even as you're listening to this passage. Be praying for him as he shares the word. And uh, I think it was Pastor Knoyer that said, be, be ready to preach, pray or die at a moment's notice. And, uh, and, and Isaac is, is stepping up to the challenge. Um, Alex uh, Kistler and I will be teaching a group of uh, pastors and Christian leaders via Zoom, uh, um, a group of, uh, of individuals in, um, in Russia. So be praying for us. There's preparation to do for that as well. And uh, so lots of preparation. Maybe you've prepared for a birthday celebration. Or maybe you have spent some time preparing for a graduation or a wedding 
Certainly, there are several of you who have been a part of this preparation process for the missions conference that's coming up in just a few days from now. And I want to just encourage you to come to that. It's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be a great time, an encouraging time. It's something that we've been thinking about, the leaders have been thinking about since February. And um, how can we bring to our church an understanding of the mission that God has called us to And how can we equip you and encourage you in the mission that God has given to you? So it's not just about coming. It's not just just about uh, listening. But I want to encourage you to serve. I want to encourage you. There's some volunteers that are still needed, especially I think on Saturday night. We need a few more volunteers to hold some babies in the nursery. I would encourage you, if you you enjoy babies, uh, that would be a great way for you to serve. Bring your children. Bring your children. If God has called us to be a missionary, if this is the life that God has set before us as his people, bring your kids so they can understand the significance of what God says from his word in terms of the life that he has called us to. This week I was reading and I read this phrase from Charles Spurgeon. I think it's really fitting for us this morning. It says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Wow. The context of this, let me just read a little fuller body of of what what he expresses in this quotation. He says this, he who really has a high estimate of Jesus will think much of him. And as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, he will talk much of him. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your spouse. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that, he continues. You either try to spend abroad or spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not have him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. That man or woman who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. You are either doing good or you are not good yourself. If you know Christ, you are as one who has found the honey that will call others to taste it. Be wise in your generation and speak of him in fitting ways and at fitting times. And so in every place proclaim the fact that Jesus is the most precious to your soul. That is essentially the message that Jesus is coming with today. Are you a missionary or are you an imposter? Are you a true disciple who lives in such a way that you understand the mission that God has called you to 
in living for the king, in obeying the king, in knowing the king, in speaking about the king, in welcoming others to participate in the kingdom of God, or you one who distances yourself from the king and treats him as a stranger. Our passage today is a continuation of the discourse we've been following through from the beginning of Luke chapter 12. Jesus, of course, is in the last few months of his ministry, and, and, and while the crowds may be accumulating, the thousands of individuals who are there listening and stumbling over one another to Jesus, Jesus knows their heart. He's known their heart from the very beginning of his ministry. John chapter 2 will help to, to paint a portrait of what Jesus really understands about the human heart when he says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem, this is speaking of Jesus, at the Passover feast, at the beginning of his ministry, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's a little horrifying. that's, That's a little terrifying statement. They believed in him, but their belief was just superficial. Their belief didn't go really down to the core of who they were. It was a a believing in what he was doing, a, a general acceptance of the fact that he was some great prophet from God, but it didn't go the distance. And Jesus recognizes that in the sense that this crowd is there in in, in, in Judea, in Galilee, listening to him here in Luke chapter 12, stumbling over themselves, but Jesus understands that their general acceptance of him at this point is not going to carry them through Jerusalem and through the Passion Week. Even their, even their celebration at the beginning of the triumphal entry where they are all crying, uh, blessed is the, is the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're shouting Hosanna to his name, but at the end of the week, they put him to death. Their superficial faith, their their fickle hearts are coming to the surface. Jesus wants them to understand the seriousness of what is coming. And so he brings it to a head here towards the end of chapter 12, verses 49 to 59. We're gonna learn about judgment today the piercing words of Jesus in talking about a, a, a very difficult topic. He begins with the certain, certainty of judgment in verses 49 to 53. The certainty of judgment. Let me just read the first couple of verses as we begin our time this morning. Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus came to establish judgment. That's our first sub-point this morning. Jesus came to cast fire on the earth. This opening phrase, this strong language of Jesus, it's not really the, the perception of the Jesus that we have come to understand in our Sunday school classes. That Jesus came to cast fire on the earth. Actually, the Greek is actually much stronger than what we read in our translation because Jesus brings the word fire right to the beginning of the sentence. It gives his first place. It's emphatic. Fire I have come to bring. Make no mistake. Fire is on my mind. Judgment 
is on my mind. Fire here is emphatic. Fire I have come to bring. What in the world does Jesus mean? Both fire and baptism in verse 50 are at the beginning of the sentence in the Greek. And there are the same number of words in each sentence. And they're constructed in the same way in each sentence to help us understand that fire and baptism are synonymous with one another and they form a synthetic parallel uh, relationship. These two statements are meant to be understood together so that we can understand the interpretation of what Jesus is getting after. Together they describe the ministry of Christ the ministry that he came to accomplish. Fire I came to cast on the earth, baptism I have come to be baptized with. We get a sense from the ministry of John the Baptist going all the way back to the beginning of Christ's public ministry, how John the Baptist will describe Jesus' ministry in, similar, in a similar way. In Luke chapter three, verses 16 to 17, he says this, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What kind of fire are we talking about, John? Well, let me explain this to you. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus has come to bring the judgment of God and to establish it once and for all. Jesus came to bring judgment. He came to differentiate between the true disciples and the counterfeits. Jesus came to usher in acceptance with God that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ or the condemnation that will come to those who choose not to believe. John chapter 3, verses 17 to 18 says this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Jesus came to demonstrate the true and only way of acceptance before God, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And those who believe in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins, believe in Jesus as the only way to salvation, not in their works, so that no one may boast, Those who believe in Jesus will not be condemned because they'll enjoy and experience the benefits of God's forgiveness and the wrath of God that we're talking about, the wrath of God that falls on Jesus Christ as forgiveness and payment of their sin. But those who do not believe, those who choose to turn their back on Jesus will exist and continue to exist in the condemnation that they already have this condemnation of unbelief. Jesus came in his death, in his resurrection, to to give sin its final blow. Up to this point, sin had dominion over, over the world. People were without hope. 
there was a, a symbol, a, a type of this future uh, sacrifice that would happen, this type that would take place in the blood of bulls and goats, but they could never remove sin, as the writer of the Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 and 14. It is impossible for the blood and bull of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible for that which is temporary to deal with that which is infinite, this infinite offense against a holy, righteous God. But Jesus, in coming to the earth, in paying for sin, brings judgment to bear on us, but also offers a way for us to enjoy forgiveness because of his sacrifice. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is the only way of experiencing peace with God. Of course, Scripture is clear. There will be a final day of wrath. Paul writes about this to the church of Thessalonica in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 and 8. He says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus came to earth to bring future judgment, to establish the grounds upon future judgment would stand. Jesus came to establish judgment. He also came to endure judgment. This was the means by which future judgment would happen. Because of his sacrifice, we can escape judgment, and because of his sacrifice, and because of the the reflection of a holy God against sin, vented on his son, Jesus Christ, It provides a picture for those who disbelieve at what they will experience because of not believing in Jesus. In verse 50, I have a baptism, he says, to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This word baptism is to immerse. It's to wash. It's to place into. And of course, this is the reason why we as Baptists will will immerse those who are baptized in water to to picture the the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. It is a a way for us to express the the going under, as it were, the being submitted to death. But what is the baptism that Jesus is referring to here? Is Jesus referring to a water baptism or some other baptism? Of course, Jesus was already baptized. That happened at the very beginning of his ministry. He's not pointing forward to another water baptism. Here, Jesus refers to the baptism of God's judgment. It is the baptism that, uh, that, that he refers to right before his triumphal entry. You remember when Peter, excuse me, James and John's mother comes to Jesus. She, she knows the kingdom is imminent. She knows that Jesus is going to usher in his kingdom. So she comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, hey, I I got a request for you. Will will you please allow my two boys, James and John, to sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds to her in Mark chapter 10, verse 38. 
he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Speaking of his judgment, speaking of the wrath of God, this cup of God's wrath that's gonna be poured out on Jesus, do you think they could possibly endure that wrath for the sake of sinners? She didn't understand in that moment and Jesus didn't bother to correct her. But throughout the Old Testament, the cup of wrath is often a symbol of God's judgment. In Psalm chapter 78, verse 8, or 75, verse 8, we find, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Well, what is this this cup? Isaiah 51 fills this out a little bit more for us, describes it better. It says, Wake yourself, or, uh, Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you have, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk down to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Of course, the baptism that Jesus is referring to is the baptism of the wrath of God that was poured out on Christ for sin. The wages of sin is death. There is no overlooking sin in God's economy. There is no way that a holy God can just excuse sin as if it didn't matter. God had to judge sin and he judged that sin on his son, Jesus Christ, who stood in the place of, the, of sinners and died in our place for those who believe in him as a way of salvation. Those who trust in him will enjoy the benefits of that transaction, that substitutionary process, that sacrifice that was given to us by God. Jesus would die in our place. He would take the wrath of God for us. He would pay the price for sin, which is death, so that we could enjoy through faith the benefits of eternal life with God and salvation and forgiveness. So those who believe in Christ for salvation can escape the wrath of God because Jesus has already endured the wrath of God for us. But Jesus, in looking forward to this tragic moment, understands the distress. It says that he is in great distress how great my distress until it is accomplished. This word to be distressed or afflicted or to be in fear, we can understand the, the, the conflict in Christ's heart as he looks forward to this, this tragic event. But the word distress also means to, to have intense focus, to be compelled to some objective. And I think that it is with this emphasis that Jesus uses this word. How great is my commitment to this objective. I will not uh, abandon it. How distressed I am. Jesus' commitment to God's will was total. He was completely governed by the desire to complete his baptism, even though it meant suffering and death in Jerusalem from Luke chapter nine where he sets his face to Jerusalem, Jesus is committed to this objective until the end, 
until it is accomplished, as Jesus says. The same word, by the way, is the word that Jesus utters on the cross, it is finished. Jesus' commitment to dealing with sin was total. He would not abandon that objective. He would drink in the full cup of God's wrath for the sake of sinners so that anyone who comes and believes in Jesus for forgiveness of sins can enjoy the benefit of salvation and forgiveness and cleansing of sin. But in coming to earth to establish judgment, to endure the judgment of God, Christ also comes and he will expose judgment. He will help us understand who the judge will be in terms of, of where we are aligning our heart. Where, is, where does our allegiance lie? Does our allegiance lie with God or, or are we like the people earlier in Luke chapter 12 that fear men rather than fearing God? Jesus wants his, his crowd to understand. In verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What in the world is happening in this passage? I have come not to give peace, but division. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is that the Jesus of your gospel uh, witness and communication? The Jesus who differentiates even between the closest relationships that we could ever experience this side of eternity? Is this the Jesus that we've heard about in Sunday school? Is this the Jesus that we think about when we watch programs like The Chosen? As, as good as that might be in terms of, of drawing us into the story of Christ? Is that the Jesus we think about when we, when we hear about him, the, the God of grace and truth? What kind of Jesus are we commending? Is this a different Jesus than what we were introduced to at the beginning of the narrative of Luke? Has, has Jesus changed in some way? I want you to understand just here for, for, a, for a couple of moments that, that when we seek to find answers from the Bible, we can trust that the Bible will not contradict itself. The Bible will be consistent from start to finish. And so the truths that we see at the beginning of the Gospel of, of Luke will be consistent throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. And so we need to understand the statement, the bold, direct, divisive statements that Jesus is making here and, 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 and compare it with what we know about Christ's life and ministry. Of course, Christ came to turn religious thinking upside down, and maybe you could say religious thinking right side up. Because our natural inclination in life and religion is to find that which supports us, encourages us, commends us, and makes our life better. But Jesus wants us to understand that we are not at the center. He is at the center. The spotlight is meant to be directed to Jesus the honor directed to Jesus, the glory directed to God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when we come to this passage, we need to understand these statements in light of what God says about himself in other places. Of course we know that Jesus came to bring peace. In Luke chapter one, verses 16 and 17, 
we find this mission statement that will be true of the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, uh, drawing from Malachi. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jesus came to make relationships in family better. Jesus came to make relationships with family possible. Maybe that's the, the better word. We can't have uh, wholesome, beneficial, godly kinds of families without the work of God in our lives. That's what Psalm 127 says. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Jesus came to establish families, not to break them apart. Jesus' message here, though, is this. Family However beautiful, however great families are, they were never meant to displace our loyalty and worship and the priority of God himself. It's almost unimaginable, probably, for this crowd there near Jerusalem because this family relationship that God had built since the very beginning of creation where a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and be joined together. The two shall become one flesh. This is God's sanctioned relationship. This is how uh, intimacy is supposed to be pictured throughout the Old Testament. And by the way, this also, the, the picture of marriage is the, the, this this picture that, that, that Christ will, will use of himself in describing his relationship to the church. So we know that family relationships are important, but never at the expense of our relationship with God. Never allow your relationship with your family to get in the way of the priority of your relationship and worship to God. Maybe you've heard the statement, Blood is thicker than water. There are a lot of different takes on this phrase, but the dictionaries uh, all align to help us realize that, that it's speaking about loyalty of family is often greater than our loyalty to anyone else. And that's what Jesus is addressing. And by the way, that's what I have seen personally in ministry. That even when there's a sin issue in a family member or a loved one, it's often easier to take sides with a family member than it is to align your heart to the, to the truth of God's word. And that's what Jesus is addressing. Do not allow your loyalty and love to your family, as wonderful as that is, to get in the way of love to God. As Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 10, 37 to 39, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Choose your loyalty to Christ. Choose to honor and worship him. We come to verses 54 to 59. And Jesus now speaks of the coming of judgment. He speaks of, of the coming of judgment. He first wants to point out 
the, the sign of the times. He, he, he uses this parable in verses 54 to 56 to help them recognize the times in which they're living. He says in verse 54, he said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be some heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You know how to predict the weather. When the wind is blowing from the coast, you know that it's gonna be, there's gonna be rain that's gonna be coming. Uh, when, the, when the wind is blowing from the south and you know it's coming from the desert area, you know it's gonna be hot and dry. How is it that you can predict the weather patterns but can't predict the times in which you're living? How can you not see what, sh- what should be so obvious to you? You've come to ask yourself the question a number of times through my ministry, could this be the son of God? Could this be the son of David? Could this be the great prophet speaking of, of the one who would be better than Moses? Could, could this be the one that we have been looking for? It has been clear. It's been obvious. The sign of the times has been, has been present with them. They, they have seen it. They have understood it. And yet nothing has changed about their hearts. Nothing has changed about their true posture towards the Lord. And there, their king their Messiah, their God was standing right in front of them and they totally missed him. And we could look at them and say, how could they be so foolish? And the truth is, my guess, many of us in this room have the same problem. We know that the sign of the times is here. We, we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We understand that the things that have been shared with us in the scriptures about his, his future coming, and we, we look around and we, we think, man, uh, Jesus, he must be coming soon. But there's nothing that really changes about the posture of our heart. There's nothing that really changes about the priorities that we set from day to day. We still get stuck in the rhythms of life and the distractions that, that catch us away whether it be work or school or home life or hobbies or leisure, whatever it might be, the signs are clear and obvious. We can predict the signs. We know it to be true, but nothing changes about the way we live. There's no urgency. There's no real attention given to God's agenda and priorities. Of course, that's not true across the board but it's probably truer of most of us than we'd like to admit. Confession time. Just yesterday, I was working on changing the oil in my car. And I saw my neighbors come and go yesterday, and I saw them kind of out and about in the, in the yard. And I, and, and I had an impulse in my mind of saying, you know, I probably should engage my neighbors in a conversation. But I never did. Not because I don't care about my neighbors. Not because I haven't been praying about how God would, would, would draw them in to gospel truth. And not that I haven't even had those conversations in the past, but, but it wasn't really very convenient yesterday. I had a lot going on. But those who understand the sign of the times will have this 
This commitment, the same commitment that that Jesus talks about here, this distress, this compulsion, this commitment that is gonna fix our eyes on the agenda that is set before us. And and, and what, what, uh, what, what Jesus has just talked about in setting our eyes on the kingdom of God and not on the things of this earth. Know the times. And finally, settle your accounts. Settle your accounts. Verses 57 to 59. Why do you not judge for yourself what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you before the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. And Jesus uses a very practical example here of what would happen in the day. That They would need to stand before a judge and they would be dragged along to court and they could either try to settle those accounts or they could take their chances and go before the judge. Jesus is trying to use this really practical example to help his audience understand the time is now, the judge is coming, and judgment is inevitable. So settle accounts now while you have time. Don't wait before you stand before the judge because when you stand before the judge, it is gonna be too late for you. You will pay to the very last penny. You will pay every price of every debt that you owe, that sin against God which demands death in hell in separation from him for eternity. You will pay that debt unless, unless you deal with that debt and settle accounts today and you rest your heart and believe in the one who has paid for that debt, Jesus himself. Jesus who endured the wrath of God's cup, his baptism of the wrath of God for you so that you and I could enjoy the benefits of salvation through faith in Christ. I wonder if even in this audience there are individuals who say, eh, I could probably deal with that tomorrow. I could wait till next week. Maybe a month from now. Maybe a Maybe after I've had some fun, understand the urgency and the imminence of the judgment that is about to come. Recognize you don't even know what your life is like. Like this individual earlier in Luke chapter 12, tonight, today, your soul will be demanded of you. Don't think about tomorrow. Deal with it today. Settle accounts today. Come to Jesus who is the only one who can forgive your sin. Recognize that he is welcoming you in to enjoy the peace that he alone has to offer. Oh God, I pray you would help us to live with urgency. Lord, help our life to demonstrate a commitment to this truth that you are coming. May that govern our private lives, May that govern our public lives. May that govern our home life, our work life, our school life, every dimension of life. Lord, may we seek to follow your agenda, your program, to be on mission. Help us not to be an imposter. May we have this mission heart. May we follow after the Savior. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their life right now to draw them to yourself. Let them understand.
that there's somebody maybe sitting right next to them who would love to introduce them to having a relationship with Jesus. May they not leave here today until they have come to enjoy the benefits of what you came to offer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you. Have a good week.